Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy at Catholic Studies Academy, and Dr. Robert Gorman, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Texas State University. Today we'll be talking about Dr. Smith's new book published by Catholic Studies Academy's own imprint, St. John Books, Understanding Modern Political Ideas, a guidebook for Christians and other patriots. The book is available on Amazon and on our website, catholicstudiesacademy.com. Today we'll be doing a deeper dive into the foundational parts of the book, introducing modern political ideas and in contrast, classical political thought before the modern period. Dr. Smith and Jason Gale had already done a general introduction in a previous podcast. So to get started, uh, Dr. Smith, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think is the central point here mm-hmm. in the, um, the contrast, say, between modern political ideas and the classical political ideas. Great. Thanks, Rich. Uh, so um, I think that uh, when you're looking at this, and when I'm, when I'm looking at it, you know, I, I want to understand, right, modern political ideas. So I want to be able to define them. I want to be able to um, sort of analyze them, look where they've come from, look at their implications, uh, what do they mean, um, those sorts of things. But I wanted to do so in a way that is in the light of classical political philosophy. So that way, this ends up being some, something of a comparative study, right, uh, where we're looking at, um, you know, ideas like classical liberalism, uh, progressivism, etc. Uh, but through the lens of uh, kind of Aristotelian, Thomist, broadly speaking, uh, political philosophy. I think, you know, uh, if you're familiar with modern philosophy at all, um, one of the things that, that sort of marks off modern philosophy is, um, I think from a classical point of view, a, a departure from, a detachment from um, being and nature and a kind of, you know, kind of idealism, a kind of skepticism uh, with respect to being uh, that is reflected in the politics, right? And so, whereas in a kind of an Aristotelian and Thomist, again, broadly speaking, uh, tradition, you, you know, being and nature really set the bounds, right, for politics. They really ground political thought and political activity. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that that, that nature is completely absent, right, from uh, modern political thought, but it certainly gets narrowed down, right? Uh, it becomes yeah. very and actually, doesn't it, in modern political thought, increasingly, particularly all the way up until we turn into postmodernism, mm-hmm. um, nature becomes more and more sort of an adversarial concept, mm-hmm. right? So uh, mm-hmm. I need to find my freedom, not within nature, as right. one would would say from a sure. classical point of view, right. but uh, over against nature, right? Until finally nature becomes a hurdle, right? That I have mm-hmm. to, I have to climb over. A hurdle or almost a mere construct, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's you know, nature is just a construct of the of the, the the most powerful faction within society, right, right, right. in postmodernism, sure. That's right, in postmodernism, you know, with that, with Kant and and subsequent idealist, right, nature kind of fades into the background as the unknown. Marx brings it back a little bit with the material dialectic, but again, it's you know, nature there isn't isn't really purposeful, except insofar as you have, um, you know, the 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 desire to create and produce. Which creates, you know, power structures that are rooted in, um, you know, the social relations and the means of production. Right, and you right. have so chapters that deal with these mm-hmm. kinds of issues later in the book. That's right. That's right. Um, but before we go off into those weeds, right? right? <laughs> yes. I, I, I kind of want to, uh, and I love that stuff. But I, mm-hmm. um, as abhorrent as it may be, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I do, I do really want to kind of, um, you know, get at one of the one of the turning points really in modern philosophy, right? That, mm-hmm. that um, I want, I don't really see tradition. Um, I don't really see sort of the wisdom of the ages, right? As mm-hmm. something that sort of 
liberates me, right? Frees mm -hmm. me from, from the futility of having to reinvent everything, right? Rediscover mm -hmm. every truth. But instead, it's a, it enriches me, right? And it mm -hmm. gives me guidance. It grounds me. It gives me direction. Sure. Um, in the classical period, that's the way we would think of it, right? We would mm -hmm. think that what we've learned from the past is to be cherished and mm -hmm. honored. Uh, and it, 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 it helps me not to make the same mistakes. <laughs> right, 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 right. I can build on it. But in the yeah. modern period, suddenly I have to do everything myself. I've got That's right. to. That's right. Why don't we talk a little bit about that and how that influences political ideas? Well, I think, yeah. So, I mean, you can look at it a couple of different ways there, right? Um, you can look at the practice of philosophy itself, mm -hmm. right? The practice of ancient medieval renaissance philosophy maybe to a lesser degree but still still there um is to look at you know your predecessors as um resources to build upon right uh not in not necessarily in a completely uncritical way uh but in a way that is um constructive right uh, whereas you know modern philosophers always want to start all over again you know every time right you know everybody's been wrong until now and now i'm going to restart philosophy well you know to 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 people in you know other traditions you know the older traditions that would have been just kind of like foolish right uh, uh to do to try to start all over again every time and then you can also look at sort of in, uh, more narrowly at you know the recommendations with respect to politics um custom is something that in you know classical political theory uh it has the force of law right the idea of precedent right of ancient usage right that there's something you know thomas has a particular explanation of it he he sees it really as a um determination of reason by the people over time that this is a good way to proceed right uh, I really like that formulation because it, it you know, attaches tradition to rationality. Um, yeah, tradition is rational. It's not right. superstition as that's it's treated right. in the modern period. Right, right. So, I mean, it, it might have sort of aspects to it that are sort of contingent, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a tradition within this time and place with this people, right? And so that, you know, the traditions um, that are useful in 13th century France are going to be different than the traditions and say, you know, 20th century or 21st century America, right? Uh, but both, right, you know, Cicero or, or Thomas would say, both should, uh, you know, uh, appeal to tradition, right? And see tradition as a, as a source of positive guidance within this time and place, right? But it, it, a tradition, right? The idea of tradition as understood in the classical period would provide continuity from one age to another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even if the traditions do change, they don't change abruptly, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're not just reinvented. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to, so I want to put this, um, this contrast between the classical period and really our own postmodern period on the mm -hmm. table. And then I want to ask Dr. Gorman to, to maybe tell us a little bit about how this relates to, um, to other cultures, the inter, the international scene, since that's mm -hmm. your area of specialization. Um, Today, what we see is not tradition in this classical sense, right? With uh, where custom plays a particular role, but sure. there's a different kind of anti-custom. There is this, um, it, it fills a sort of a similar role, but in a violently different direction. That is, <laughs> and that is the sort of faddishness of mm. today, the trend, right? The, mm. What you'll find is the, um, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear language like he's, He's out of touch, or or um, or tone deaf, right? Uh -huh. And right, the idea right. is, well, this is the song we're singing now. <laughs> right? This is the thing we're doing today, mm -hmm. um, which is, and it changes all the time, right? It's constantly sort of, mm -hmm. um, you, it's hard to keep up with it, right? Sure. What today sure. is the thing we're allowed to say, or the the gesture we should be mm -hmm. we should mm -hmm. be doing so that we can show ourselves to belong. Mm -hmm. um, so Dr. Gorman, th this idea, which is all over um, contemporary Western society today, what do people around the world think of this? I mean, outside of Western culture, how would they regard this sort of thing? Well, I think, 
the answer has to be kind of twofold. If you look at um, those who are avant-garde in other parts of the world, right. including, including in Africa, I, I taught a course in African politics, among other things, in Asia, where I lived for a couple of years, um, those who are, who are avant-garde are just as much into this fashion of the day as mm -hmm. progressives in, 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 this, in this country. Um, but if you go into the villages and into the little towns and even mm -hmm. sometimes into the shanties of, the, of Manila or, or you know, other third world cities, you're gonna find people who are still very much down to earth. Mm -hmm and who understand that life is hard, that you have to work, you have to engage in productive work to, for your family to survive. And most of them are very in touch with their families. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want outsiders to be messing with their families, right. which is the constant preoccupation of UN agencies and that kind of thing is to tell everybody else in the world how they ought to live. <laughs> or yeah. whether they should worship or how they should worship and, and those kinds of things. And one of the, one of the helpful things, the really helpful things, the, one of the most sane things a student of political science can do is to begin reading the Greco-Roman classics and then work their way through the, the Christian uh, uh, tradition mm -hmm. and the kind of the grafting of those two traditions, the Judeo-Christian and the and the Greco-Roman traditions right. together, that, which actually is the source of our Western civilization. And then you begin to appreciate the continuity that Ben was talking about a little bit there before, about how you can, within the broad scope of the realist tradition, classical thought, actually develop it. Mm -hmm. The Christian tradition, of course, develops this in ways that would have been impossible in Greco-Roman times because they didn't sure. have the Christ event had not taken place. There was no New Testament. Christian culture had not, had not uh, uh, spread across the Roman Empire yet to, to offer a, another, a different vision of, mm. of the world. Um, and one rooted in a true understanding of the dignity of human persons, mm. not just as an abstract idea, but as the reality of who we are as creatures made in the divine image and likeness, which was a concept absent, of course, in the, in the classical tradition. But the natural law was there. The idea that, I mean, guys like Aristotle and Cicero and other, others in the Stoic tradition were able to observe patterns of human behavior, the, our natural inclination to family life. Right, right. Aristotle spends a delightful sometimes a little bit contradictory in time in both the ethics and the politics, teasing out how politics arises from the family. Right, right, right. The types of regimes that you find mm -hmm. for a comparative political scientist are embedded in the relations that exist between spouses or between parents and children or between siblings. Right. And, and so, there's, an, there's an understanding that religion emerges mm -hmm. from, from the family Life. Sure, sure. That's right. Ancestors and fashioning custom and belief. Mm. You see just how much uh, more in touch that is with a view of human nature, right? That's stable, uh, that's ordered, that's purposeful, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that I touch on in the introduction of the book and um, in other places, you know, bring up over and over again is a, you know, is that a classical kind of politics, any politics is influenced by a classical vision is gonna be one that has a classical and Christian view of the human person, right? So that you you have both, you know, sort of this natural law approach you're talking about, the idea of nature as a given, right? right. Uh, it's not something you invent, right? That nature has purposes built into it, that ignoring that nature, just like, you know, ignore it, like if you're trying to, if you're trying to plant tomato plants, you know, uh, you know, on asphalt, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, yeah. right? you know yeah, they learn that in the uh, <laughs> Seattle autonomy. Oh, that's right, exactly. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the idea of even science, I mean, mm -hmm. science is unthinkable in virtually every other um, 
civilizational system in the world other than the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian tradition, which believes that the world is real and that we as knowing beings seeking truth and with a capacity to understand reality, can that it's intelligible that we can learn. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so there are X and Y chromosomes, after all. Male and female. We used to know that. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So one of the things that I think is really central, right, in this in the classical understanding of things is, mm. which I think we've lost sight of, and you say so in the book, um, is the idea of the common good. Mm. We 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 might throw out the term today, but I don't think we use it at all in the same way that it was used in the classical period. Right. And by classical here, I mean all the way through the Middle Ages. Right. Sure. So sure. Um, t- tell us a little bit about that idea, how it differs from, say, today's idea of, um, you know, the thing that benefits everyone in right. some way. Right. Or, mm-hmm. uh, right. Okay. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I at this point, <laughs> I guess like any time that you, I mean, that's what I wrote my dissertation on, and and you know, belabored and and worked on, and had to really you know change my mind on and understand more deeply, and 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 so forth uh, over really you know more than a decade. You know, when I hear the term "common good" now brought up, you know, by politicians or unfortunately by was sometimes in an ecclesial setting. Uh, you know, I kind of start to get a little, like to shudder a little bit because, you know, um, it, I would say the most of the time that it's brought up, it's brought up as if the common good is identical to what utilitarians of the John Stuart Mill type mm-hmm. thought, right? That is that it's an aggregate of individual satisfactions uh-huh. or in our own time, an aggregate and the decrease of pain and suffering, individual pain and suffering, right? Now, obviously, you know, in general, abstractly, I should say, we would think, you know, would should decrease individual suffering where possible. Um, but that's not the common good, actually. That's not the political common yeah, good. Yeah, I, I think today also it it's used, again, in sort of this postmodern time that we're in, right? Mm-hmm. I think it tends to be used today if I read things correctly, you know, that as um, a sort of decree of the majority on what mm-hmm. is desirable to them. Sure, sure. Right. So what what most people want, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. or what the most powerful voices want. Sure. I mean, and that goes along with right, general satisfaction or general dissatisfaction. Right, except in this particular mm-hmm. case, right, they're not really concerned about the extreme dissatisfaction of some which, which goes to the cruelty right that we often sure. find flowing from from sure. uh progressive movements. yeah i, I think yeah. you know among among political scientists um I, I wrote a book some years ago for the society of catholic social uh scientists that was mm. entitled toward the common good a catholic critique of the modern discipline of political science mm-hmm. And one of the things you run into when you read uh, political scientists talking about the common good, they say, yeah, you know, it's a smokescreen. You know, there's no such thing as the common good. It's just mm. the interests of the powerful that determine these things. Right. And of yeah. course, that's a highly positivistic understanding of the world. It's, it's, um, there's no longer any anchor in nature or reality. Mm. Um, it's an artificial construct. Uh, it results from liberal the you know starting with Hobbes and Locke and maybe even going back to Machiavelli who Mm. rejected the idea of any kind of eternal truth and only spoke about effective truth Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at least in the prince which is the best known of his works so here's how here's how here's how Dr. Smith um describes it it, on, on page 19 of the book a common good is a good one in number shared by many Right. That's a pretty straightforward, I think, um, way to define it. Uh, lifted probably almost right out of St. Thomas, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. really how he would describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, by contrast, an individual good, for example, my health, may only be enjoyed by one directly. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that 
I think that's a pretty clear way to describe it, right? I mean, sure, my my mother might might um, delight in my health, right? Sure, because she doesn't want to me want me to be mm-hmm. unhealthy, but sure. But but my health is actually mine, right? Mm-hmm. Not someone mm-hmm. else's. Yeah, so yeah, I'd say like uh, for example, you could say as a father of a family, right? My health is important to my children, in the sense that um, my health and the continuance of my health health allows me to contribute to their good, right? Mm-hmm. But but the good that they enjoy from my health is not my health, but my provision. Does that make right. sense? Right. So it's yeah. a, it's kind of indirect. And so one of the things you have to have to really work to, to, to clarify, I think, in your thinking is there really is a qualitative distinction between a common good and an individual good. Uh, and, th- and that's that's a little bit difficult, I think. Even when people talk about the common good, they really just usually mean the multiplication of individual goods. Yeah. Right? So yeah. so this is interesting, right? On the one hand, it isn't, virtue is an individual good, mm-hmm. right? In a certain sense. Yeah. A, um, a given habit, a particular habit. Yeah. Right. Now it has consequences for the common good, right? Mm-hmm. The the virtue of the citizenry is a common good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so part of part of individual virtue, though, is my caring for the good of others. Would you agree? Sure. And that's one of the things that I think is wonderful in the classical tradition that sometimes gets missed out is that my my individual good actually includes my greater care for the common good that I share with others, right? Um, and so that there isn't this opposition between altruism and egoism in classical right. thought that you run into in modern thought, right? It's actually, my good is being a, a pater familias who cares for the common good of the family, right? Where I put the domestic felicity of the whole family above my particular individual enjoyment of this or that good. And, but, but at the same time, what you're, what you're suggesting is my individual good of virtue exists uh, most fully, right? When I am caring for the common good of the family. Mm-hmm. That's right, right, right. I think that's, a, that's I mean, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I remember, and I think Rich, you probably had this experience, uh, Bobby probably had this experience too, that in a lot of ways, like when I came to Aristotle, like that's one of those things where you're just like, as an undergraduate, at least that's when I had this experience. I was just, oh, like there's the, there is a way to try to, to overcome the egoism versus altruism, right? Dichotomy, right? That we experience in modern thought. Right. And in Aristotle, the, the thing that, that really grabbed me, and it took several readings of him actually for me to begin to understand what he was trying to say. Um, all of us know that we want to be happy. Mm-hmm. But we tend to identify happiness under the influence of the Enlightenment mm-hmm. as a, as more a feeling or a sentiment mm-hmm. rather than a than a state of being. Correct. Yeah. Um, and Aristotle is very clear in the ethics, especially, mm-hmm. and then in the politics, that you know, happiness is about it's about our flourishing together, mm-hmm. and it's about each of us seeking what is good and mm-hmm. true and beautiful and virtuous. It's mm-hmm. about, um, he, he wouldn't actually put it quite in the way St. Paul and Jesus do in the gospel that is, sure. it, you know, it is in giving that we receive. Right, right, the right. Idea that you're not just here for yourself, that you're, you're raised in the heart of a family. That family is embedded in a larger community that, mm-hmm. that that pulls and tugs together in economic sure. life, which incidentally, most modern liberal economists don't even know the etymology of the word. <laughs> right. right. Oikos, nomi, right? Uh-huh. Reference to the household management and mm-hmm. household lots. The work was done in the family for the good mm-hmm. of the family, but it's enhanced by cooperative means of exchange with your neighbors. Right, um, right. And, and that everyone flourishes not only materially, but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their genuine human good, when you're involved in a community. That's right. That's the key. Society yeah. Society and a, and a polity mm-hmm. where you're working and tugging together. That's what, yeah, that's, that's great. And I think that's uh, exactly right. And one of the things that we have to really correct, right. in the, in modern thinking, right. Is what we end up with see is, 
is if you have an individualistic account of happiness, right? Then either what you have to do is have a competitive view, right? You really have, it come down to having a competitive view. And then you have to say, well, either I'm just going to be an egoist and care about my individual good, or what we have to do is maximize or equalize, like in a socialist setting, equalize the individual happiness of everyone. But that's completely to misunderstand the nature of happiness, right? Yeah. Uh, especially at the civic level, right? Um, you know, and where it, it typically misunderstands freedom too, because mm. the freedom isn't freedom uh, is embedded in this natural setting where all of us are seeking happiness. Right. All of us are aiming to work towards what's good, mm -hmm. seeking for truth. We're trying to survive in a difficult world. We're trying to promote security sure. and safety and, mm -hmm. and all these other goods that we have natural inclinations to. Mm -hmm. We also have a natural inclination to freedom. Right. But freedom simply lived like an idiot. <laughs> you can even compare that word to ideology, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Touch with the rest of reality, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's not true freedom. Mm -hmm. You don't flourish in, in that kind of a setting. Right. Uh, and so it's learning, it's learning to live by the norms mm -hmm. and the customs and the conventions of one society that you actually can, your own individual uh, personality and uh -huh. talent and contribution sure. can become visible. That's right. That's it's right. hidden from you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and actually, and can make you better, right? The idea right. of perfectionism right. um, is, is lost today because mm -hmm. we have this idea that, um, you know, I could be whatever I want to be, right? And freedom right. is really just succumbing to my own wants, right? Rather than in some instances transcending them for the sake of, of a that's of a right. Good. That's right. So, yeah. Today, you have the freedom to make your own truth. Yeah, mm -hmm. right, which is absurd. But let's, Truth. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, this remark in chapter one, right at the beginning of chapter one, actually, you talk about this idea of the relationship between the, the person and the community when you say political community perfects man, mm -hmm. right, which today, <laughs> now that, it's funny, because you could think, well, that's kind of creepy, right? You might sure. say political community perfects man, I'm thinking you know, Stalin or something. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> now, I know that isn't what you mean, right? Sure, sure. You go on to say it concentrates resources in a way that makes possible the division of labor, specialization, and diversification of markets. Mm -hmm. Still, this sounds kind of clinical, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it sounds sort of like, well, we're trying to produce some efficient machine. Mm -hmm. But again, I know that's not what you mean. Mm -hmm. So I, how about um, if you expound a little bit on... Uh, this idea, what what exactly do you mean when you say that that the political community perfects man? I, I know it has mm -hmm. to do with with the idea of the common good. Sure. And, and it really then comes down to understanding maybe kind of aspects of happiness uh -huh. and the relationship of happiness to the civic community. Now, one of the things that I think um, Aristotle kind of he kind of hints at this and kind of gets this, but of course, within a Christian perspective, you know, Thomas gets it better and recognizes that, you know, that that the civic happiness that we that is really relevant in, in political talk, right, is not the ultimate happiness, right? That there's a there's a happiness that goes beyond that. That politics isn't ultimate, but politics is real, and so you need to kind of think about like what is the kind of happiness that's a, that's operative here. And that's the kind of happiness that we're talking about in terms of perfection or completing man. Mm -hmm. Man is a rational animal, right? And if you really think about human life, um, a lot of our lives are animal enriched by rationality, but animal, right? So bodily, right? Temporal, right? Um, you know, uh, think about how much of your day is taken up with, things like that are related to shelter, clothing, food, children, marriage, the pursuit of marriage, right? Uh, relate, uh, maintaining relationships that de develop out of marriage and, and extended family, right? When you really start to think about it, you know, 
although there's a part of the human being that transcends that, that is deeply embedded in what we are as human beings, right? And so um, there is a kind of perfection that we can attain. By perfection, I don't mean pristineness necessarily, but a, a kind of completeness and actuality of flourishing, right? That we can achieve um, that has to do with being rational and bodily. And perfection and doesn't here mean self-aggrandizement. No, no, yeah. It just means actualization. It just means flourishing, right? Mm. So are you flourishing as a, um, as a citizen, as a father, as a member of a family, as a son, uh, all those sorts of things. You know, we think about, yeah. you know, the relationship as a, as a son to your father after you're an adult, right? Is that something that you're, you're still, that's still flourishing, right? Uh, yeah. Those sorts of things that makes up so much of human life, right? And Aristotle is sensitive to that. Um, and, you know, what, what I'm, what I think Aristotle and St. Thomas are, are pushing at here is there is a kind of perfection there, a kind of flourishing. And that flourishing only happens rationally and effectively within a well-ordered political community, right? So that we are in a deficient state, not an evil state, but a deficient state, not a morally evil state, but a deficient state when we're trying to achieve that outside of a well-ordered community, right? Now, that doesn't mean we can't achieve it at all, but it does mean that the, the, the normative setting, right, uh, for what, I, what in the technical language is active acquired happiness, right, the kind mm -hmm. of imperfect happiness, the proper setting for that is a decent, at least a decently ordered uh, political community. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it needs to be decently ordered. Um, and, and then we can get into why that's the case, right? So, but yeah, but that's, the, that's the assertion. There's a kind of happiness that's only available to us in a decently ordered political community. Yeah, right, right. So, he also, Aristotle is also, the important fact is that he really, his politics comes after his ethics. Mm -hmm. it, 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 his, uh, you can see it in the way the two texts are structured. Oh, oh yeah, exactly, yeah. That, so the, the political system itself needs to be reflective of ethical order. Mm -hmm. That, the, that what what's constitutes virtue in a person uh, also needs to be reflected in the virtuous laws of the state or the city mm -hmm. that helps to fashion the community in light of certain habits that lead to good, to truth, mm -hmm beauty and to order and even to philosophy, which mm -hmm. Aristotle said would not be possible in a city that wasn't well ordered. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Political order for there to even be people with enough leisure. That's right. To pursue philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, I love the way he he sees how, in a sense, politics, the political community grows out of, you know, this uh, this sense of ethics, which is also tied to family relationships. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a, the best political systems are ones where the household, the polis and the oikos are collaborative with one another right, right. and the citizen that can be courageous and just and prudent mm -hmm. and temperate yeah. in the cardinal virtues, but then the city's laws need to reflect that as well. Absolutely. So I, I like in, in Aristotle, in the Chromicate Ethics, it's interesting, right, that he he says that that ethics is a uh, ethics falls under under political thought, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and toward the toward the end of the book, he's um, he's dealing with issues like friendship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Um, so he's already he's orienting ethics toward toward communal relations. Right. Right. But he acknowledges that those friendships are embedded first in the family. Right. So that a good good government that's monarchy represents a good parent and how they uh, mm -hmm. raise a child. Right. Or, yeah. or aristocracy, the collaborative relationship between husband and wife mm -hmm. to raise mm -hmm. their children and to provide for the needs of the household. So mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I, I want to talk about this this idea here in Aristotle, which I find fascinating. I, I've always I found a way I think to sort of talk about it, right? Because I think it's it's hard for contemporary people to understand. Um, there's a close relationship in classical thinking between 
natural goodness and moral goodness. Today, we tend to think of them as being sort of two completely different things. Yeah. And I think part of the reason we want to do that is because maybe we, we want to recognize that sometimes morally bad people can be physically excellent or something, right? They mm-hmm. can be very good health or people in very bad health can be morally excellent. Mm-hmm. But still, I, I think that in classical thinking, there, there's a morality is part of human nature, right? The, mm-hmm. Your character is part of human nature. Right. And so the question, right, that we're asking, both in the case of my physical health, but also in the case of my moral health and spiritual mm-hmm. health is, am I a good instantiation? Am I a good example mm-hmm. of a human being? right Right? yes yes. so when we say when when, when i ask are you a good person and Mm -hmm. i mean that morally right i'm 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 asking whether you are a good example Mm -hmm. of a human being in terms of character and conduct Mm -hmm. yeah that presupposes right and i think this is a, a a key difference between uh classical politics and modern politics that presupposes that there there is a criterion, right? Such that one can be measured against it as a good or bad human being. Yes. Right. Uh, and I think that's that, you know, again, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it because I think this kind of develops in stages. I think, you know, in my own reading of John Locke, for example, um, my understanding of him has developed and matured you know, over the 30 years I've been reading him now. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, um, I think he does actually, like he, Locke and, and, and then somebody later on, like Thomas Reed, I think does actually have something like a sense of human nature and human flourishing. He probably disconnects it from politics more than Aristotle would, right? Uh-huh. I, I think that's where the difference is, right? But, um, but you know, as we go through modern philosophy, that idea of and modern political thinking, that idea of there is a human nature, mm-hmm. right? That individual humans can be measured against, um, I think, diminishes and becomes more and more attenuated to almost kind of the the vanishing point. Yeah. Um, so that's I mean, and I think that's a big part, right, of of where you know we are. Um, Politically, one of one of the areas, and this is kind of a bold assertion, but one of the er- one of the reasons that I think it's we should think about modern political ideas in the light of classical philosophy is that um, for all of its shortcomings, and I will grant that there are shortcomings, um, the classical philosophers got right that there is. <laughs> this sounds weird to say, but there is such a thing as a human being, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that it's it's universal. Now, at the same time, I want to insist strongly that that human being is differentiated in time and place to some degree and to important degrees. And this is the balance I think you actually find in Aristotle, right? And and later thinkers like I think like Edmund Burke, where you recognize like there is a, a permanent such a thing as a permanent human nature, a universal human nature. It is mediated through time and place, and we need to be very sensitive to that. And I think the Aristotelian tradition is, um, but we've left off that pole, right, of that where there's a permanent, there's anything sort of permanent. When uh, I was teaching a class, um, an honors class at a university uh, on uh, the Greeks and the Romans, right? It was a wonderful class. It was kind of one of those interdisciplinary classes on the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, interestingly, about five years later, the administrators and all their uh, wisdom decided to get rid of the class. But the <laughs> the uh, it was a wonderful class, yeah, and the, yeah, the students yeah. loved. The, the funny thing is, the students loved it, right? Uh, but I said one of the themes of the class is going to be: Is there such a thing as human nature? Right? Yeah. You know, and um, you know, and, and certainly like Thucydides and Plato and Aristotle and all these people are going to have different views, right? about that, but a common theme, right, is that there is, right, a human nature there. Um, so I think that's uh, um, an area where, you know, the classics got it right. And and so in a way, I think Aristotle 
with shortcomings, but nevertheless, and, and Thomas working on Aristotle is actually telling us about the reality of politics, right? This is the reality of politics, even when we don't recognize it. And that's why I characterize so much of modern thought as ideological, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it, it's, it's, it's a almost avoidance of the reality of the human person. Yeah. And part of the, Part of the reality that was understood from the beginning was that we are ra we are rational beings, right? Mm -hmm. We're human beings. That what distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom is precisely our rationality. Right? Does that oblige and, us to the truth? And it does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> certainly for Aristotle, he would say then that that we we are naturally truth seekers. Every mm -hmm. the first line in the metaphysics, right? Mm -hmm. All men desire to know implicitly mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. And the way he deals with that in the metaphysics is really, it's, you know, for its time, it's actually brilliant. You just look at it and you go, wow, that somebody got mm -hmm. so much of this right, you know? So, uh, you know, so in such an ancient time is really quite amazing. Um, but it's, for me, uh, Aristotle points to that idea of the, of the connection then, it's not just Aristotle, it's Plato as well, then reason needs to be to, to rule over raw emotion and right. appetite. Right, mm -hmm. today it's the other way around, isn't it? That's a, absolutely. Exactly, and, yeah. and you, you are more like a beast, which is mm -hmm. like what much modern thinking about humanity is. <laughs> right. Reason is only used as a calculative device mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. satisfy passion and appetite. Yeah, That's and right. so in, in, contemporary in contemporary politics, right, doesn't it seem though that, that with this turn, and it seems this way to me, that with this term, actually it's something I think Plato would have recognized mm -hmm. in the Republic, that, um, that what happens is on the one hand, we try to maximize the scope of individual, uh, of individual human willfulness, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just, mm -hmm. I, my own, my drives uh, govern me, not my reason, right? Mm -hmm. So I try to, mm -hmm. we try to maximize the scope of that. But recognizing that it will have negative implications, right? It, right. It, the control not coming from my reason must come from an external right. authority and mm -hmm. thus the sort of libertine but nonetheless totalitarian mm -hmm. uh, kinds of political organizations that we see in the postmodern period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the I good mean, is the object yeah. of the will and the truth is the object of the reason and the and reason schools the will into what is truly good. Yeah, so actually this, yeah, that's right. And this, this actually gets to a point um, that I wanted to address, mm -hmm. which has to do with the question of um, real versus apparent goods. Mm -hmm. so, so the idea of the common good, right, involves the recognition of a good that is common to all, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it's a single good, as you said, it's a single good shared by many. Right. Um, but we can be mistaken about our identification of what's good and bad. Sure. Yes, we can. Sure. So how do we, how do we deal with that? <laughs> what's the, we need mm -hmm. a practical way of, of trying to, to make sure that we're not misidentifying the good. Mm -hmm. So I think when you, when you hear, so, um, that's a good question. I, and I, I would just go back to, so what is the political common good? And when you hear it, I think it's fairly obvious. And it, it's one of those things like, it's obvious once you hear it, right? And then and then you actually see, actually, this is the way we act. That, that's what I want to say. I mean, the thing that's most compelling, right, about, you know, say the Aristotelian account of ethics or uh, a Thomist account or whatever, uh, is you, you start looking at it, you're like, oh yeah, that's, that, that's actually what happens with me, right? You know, this is actually, you know, what we do. So, you know, the when you get down to it specifically and concretely, and I try to define this concretely, right, in, in the, the text is that uh, the political common good uh, is the just development, use, and exchange of temporal goods, right? Or to put it in more modern terms, you might say basic goods and services. Um, and so that's, that's what, you know, that's, that is the common good. Now you think about it. When we have political arguments, Right? What are we arguing about? 
we're arguing about whether or not a given distribution, a given exchange, a given use of temporal goods, right, in our body politic is just or not, right? And, and I think that, you know, like even in our own contemporary debates, that's what it's, you know, when we think about, um, you know, very often our contemporary debates, individualism versus socialism or something like that, neither of which are totally correct, but some of them are, I guess, more incorrect than others. But the, um, what we're really arguing about is as a body politic, right? At the level of policy and law in our civic life, what is a just uh, arrangement for our um, exchanges, right? Um, so I think, can we, get, can we be wrong about that question? Of course, but that's the question we're asking. That's the question, like the question we're asking is us as a body politic, how do we come about to have a just development use and exchange of temporal goods? So really though, there, what, what we learn the minute we begin to sort of push on these ideas mm -hmm. is that there's a layer upon layer of judgment mm -hmm. sure. that we have to make, right? Mm -hmm. What's the good? What's justice? Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could just dig down and down and down. Mm -hmm. And this is actually one of the important things about custom Sure. That you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, and shared concepts, right. Yeah, of yeah. human nature and purpose and yeah. right. So yeah. and all of which is, is in short supply today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Part of it is that today we expect way too much from government. Sure. Um, so if you go back and you look at, at Aristotle's account of why cities why why uh, families become villages and villages mm -hmm. become cities it's because they become more self-sufficient and more secure mm -hmm. and the primary thing that's driving that is security mm -hmm. a family can't protect its members from all from theft robbery uh rape mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all these kinds of things as effectively as a community of families a village sure or even more effectively, a city where everyone is throwing their private goods into the common good of the security of the community. Right. So you need people who have courage so that they, they'll actually be willing to sacrifice their life for the defense of the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You need people who are courageous to be prudent because you don't want them to throw their life away. Sure. <laughs> you need people who are just mm -hmm. uh, and, and moderate and temperate. Mm -hmm in order for the whole system to, to work well. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the provision of the needs, you don't erase the family to achieve no, that. No. You allow the families to flourish in cooperative exchange with one another. That's right. And they didn't feel like the government had to direct that. Mm -hmm. You know, it, and who paid the taxes? Well, there was an expectation that those who were wealthy would Provide for a trireme, which would mm -hmm. be a liturgy, a public work. Yep, yep, yep. For the people, for the good of the people, and then you would honor that person and regard That's right. them as a good citizen because they performed the role that they could with the means that they had. Yeah, you think about who's the greatest person in the city. The greatest person in the city is the magnanimous man, and, right? Right. You know who does great works for the public, right? right. You know for the the civitas uh, or the the polis. Um, you know, that's the, that's the, the ideal citizen, the great citizen, right. Uh, who goes above and beyond. Right. Um, but I think, you know, what, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And where, where then does the magistrate come in? Well, the magistrate comes in most often, right. When injustice arises, Right. Uh, so you're right, you know, I think Aristotle and Thomas see the parts of the community as the ones who are building up, right, right. these basic goods and services, right? It's not the magistrate who is building up these goods and services. The magistrate comes in to, to say, oh, like, well, there's been an injustice here, and now this needs to be rectified. Exactly. And, and, the, oh. and here's, where, here's why Christianity is so important. Because the church... Mm -hmm. in the life of the Christian community and even beyond the Christian community in the early church was all about tending to the health needs, mm -hmm. to the food needs, right, sure. 
to the housing of those, mm -hmm. you know, under the under the corporal works of mercy. Mm -hmm. So um, a lively church mm -hmm. working in a community to provide for the needs of the community, especially those most in need, cooperates with the government, right? Sure. In, uh, in a sense that's there simply to take care of security and mm -hmm. to get enough taxes to have a justice system and mm -hmm. things like that, and maybe some infrastructure projects and so on. But the socioeconomic and cultural life of the community is carried in the Christian uh, vision by mm -hmm. the church itself. Sure. And virtually every activity for the social and humanitarian good of the people originated mm -hmm. with a saint or, or with mm -hmm. the church itself right. to provide right. a common or a public good for people mm -hmm. without the government directing it to do so. But yeah, that's true, because there was that whole, that whole uh, sad failure uh, of Julian the Apostate. Now we're going a little, we're going a little long, so I want to push towards some final uh, thoughts. Okay. Um, by by addressing two issues, one is the okay. concept of justice, and the other is the idea of uh, of the incommensurability of ideas. This is okay. a term you use in the book, mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's apropos to, to discuss that concept when we discuss. The sure. idea of justice because um, current ideas of justice versus classical mm -hmm. ideas yeah. of justice are a good example of what you mean by incommensurability. By incommensurability. <laughs> so, <laughs> so today when I hear justice, right, I almost mm. cringe at this. At this. I mean, <laughs> so sad, me right? <laughs> a, a meanie or somebody. But, but um, I mean, obviously I'm pro-justice, you know, but, sure. but I think today when people use the word justice, they very often... They very often mean one of two things, which are loosely uh, interrelated, okay. uh, but but so loosely as to be almost um, like clearly they don't have a system worked out here. Right, right, right. But one is a demand I place on you. Okay. Right. So when when we talk about justice, we're talking about something that I, I'm I'm demanding something of you, right? And I'm mm -hmm. saying that you giving it to me is justice. You mm -hmm. owe me something. You owe me right. something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you took it from me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you. That, yeah, that's a key point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you just owe me something because mm -hmm. of because of how I, you know, my identity or or something, right? Um, and it's a condition of equity, mm -hmm. right? In somehow in society. Yeah. That's not really the classical concept though right it's not that it's it's not that classical concept has nothing to do with those ideas correct but it is it's a poor representation mm. and yeah i think it's a, continuous from it's it. a yeah it's a watered down and kind of misguided and confused <laughs> uh interpretation of that you know uh, at, at the base level you know the classical understanding is rendering what is due to another so there are times, uh, for example, you know, in which you can make a demand upon me. I do owe to you um, the borrowed uh, ladder, right? If I if you know if I borrowed your ladder, I do owe it to you back, right? Uh, similarly, if um, uh, you and I agreed that I would cut your grass for uh, forty dollars, you do uh, I owe you. Uh, a mowed lawn and you owe me $40, right? Um, so there is a time where we can say uh, that there's a, a, you can put a demand on someone, right? But it's not a demand of absolute equality vis-a-vis -vis society, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, there's just nothing like that that has to do with justice. Well, more justice is what's, is, is a rendering what is due to another. And, you know, and again, if you, if you take the time to go back into the classical tradition, what is due to another is worked out with a, a great deal of precision uh, and a great deal of, um, of nuance. Um, but basically the idea that I'm owed something simply because I am human, right? Um, owed something is, by whom, Right. So that's a question that never seems to be asked. Sure. By whom? Yeah. Who actually but, owes it to me? Right. That the community right. at large seems to be the idea. Yeah. Owes, owes to me something. I think in the classical perspective is largely negative. That is, 
I'm owe, like I owe to all of my fellow citizens. Um, well, the the government, the magistrate, right? What does it owe? It owes certain protections, right? It owes protections of life and property and and things of that nature, uh, preventing fraud, etc. Um, it does not owe to you, and this sounds harsh, but it's just true if you think about it. Um, equal outcomes, equal prestige, equal pleasure, equal honor. Uh, it doesn't owe any of that to you. Like the, the the magistrate does not owe to you owe that to you, and neither does uh, neither do your fellow citizens. What we owe to each other as fellow citizens is that we're all going to strive for the common good, which is that civic life, right? Uh, that we share. One of the things I was really interested in when we got into the whole debate about um, universal healthcare, right? Is how often right, the common good was invoked in that discussion, especially in Catholic circles, with no recognition that health is an individual good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Zero, right, uh, um, uh, understanding of that. Now, that doesn't mean that, that justice and healthcare have nothing to do with each other. I wouldn't want to say that, but we need to recognize I am not owed, right, the say, uh, necessarily, exactly the same healthcare as everyone else, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and the magistrate doesn't have a duty to give me that in terms of equality. What do you want to say, Bob? You want to jump in there? Yeah, it, it, the Aristotle's treatment of this question is interesting because he says, he puts it, uh, if you're talking about distributive justice, then, that's right, yeah. Then giving equally to equals and unequally to unequals is, is necessary to avoid conflict. Right. That's right, that's right. In fact, it's, yeah, it's, it's a common it's, good. It's unjust, <laughs> right. it's unjust to give unequally. Then he also treats, uh, you mentioned equity earlier, Rich, and uh-huh. for, for, for Aristotle, equity comes to play when the magistrate has fashioned a law and that, that has created a manifest unfairness mm-hmm. in a particular case mm-hmm. and then it's the duty of the judge mm-hmm. to adjust the law in the mind of a legislature assuming that the legislature would not have wanted sure this right. unanticipated injustice to occur so you accommodate it but you mm-hmm. don't make that into a universal rule right right right, accom- right that's what custom is about the gradual accommodation to mm-hmm making laws more just in the way they apply to the people as a whole. Right. So equity is part of the common good. It's what, it's what we would demand of the government when there really is a manifest injustice that it's inflicting because of a bad law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or, or a circumstance the law didn't anticipate. Exactly, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. So in the case of Obamacare, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so many manifest right. bad outcomes for everybody. It, you couldn't solve it by equity. You have uh-huh. to feel the sucker and write a new law. So talk incommensurability of ideas. Okay. Uh, tell me about like, so relate this to the, this problem. I think that, I, I think that uh, Bob just brought up the, the, the perfect way to put it. And, and that is that our ideas about justice are so different, right? Um, that it, it, the justice is difficult for us to use as a concept to adjudicate our differences, right? Um, there's one large popu- you know, part of the population of the United States, and this is true of other Western uh, powers, that believes justice simply means equality, right? It simply means a kind of arithmetical equality of distribution. Yeah, um, right. And, uh, and almost arithmetical equality of uh, reduction in suffering, right? Um, Kamala Harris had a political ad just recently, right, in which <laughs> basically she just she explicitly said that it, it, you know equity. She used the term equity mm. involves. <laughs> this, this means yeah. equity is is about um, is about achieving equal outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She pretty much explicitly right. said that. Whereas a, a classical notion of justice. Uh, and it was you know, just perfectly stated there a minute ago is you, know, you should treat equals as equals insofar as they are equals and you should treat unequals unequally insofar as they are unequal, <laughs> right? And, and, and those, like, if, you, if your view is all inequality is bad, right? Uh-huh. And you simply cannot 
Yeah, you can't engage in that conversation. You can't engage with the person who says, actually, um, sometimes the just thing is to treat people unequally and differently, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that from their natural experience, I mean, of course they do when they think about it. Knows okay. that, you know, the kid playing football in high school is going to get more potatoes on his plate than the third grade that's already a little. <laughs> and no one, no one is really consistent, right? Even no. if they do claim to believe in equity, they're not consistent in the mm -hmm. way that they actually engage with other human sure. beings. Sure. My, uh, my test so, case for this when I teach it in class is to say, do all of you think that you should get exactly the same grade? Yeah, both yeah. both the person who turns in nothing and the person who spends 40 hours on his give paper. A, give one group assignment and you'll find the answer to that as fast as, <laughs> you know, so. That's right. Right. That's um, a free rider problem that the public choice. Yeah. Identified, mm -hmm. Right. right. So just as a, as a Catholic theologian, right. Mm -hmm. uh, my concern here is that we in the church often don't recognize the extent to which language has become incommensurable. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that the Catholic church has a long tradition, classical tradition of using terms like justice mm -hmm. and the common good, right. Um, and humanity, right. Solidarity. That, that, that right. isn't shared mm -hmm. by our presumed interlocutor. Right. We're not right. having the same conversation at right. all, Yeah. but we can make ourselves feel as if we're, we're covering ground that we're making progress. Mm -hmm. that we're coming mm -hmm. to, that we're coming to shared insights and agreements. In mm -hmm. fact, that is not true. That's right. That's absolutely right, Rich. And that's one of the, the, the functions, I think, uh, kind of the side functions of the book, right? Is that we bring out like, when a Marxist says just, justice and a progressive says justice and a classical liberal says justice, they all mean very different things, right? And, and what you need to attune your thought to is, what are the differing accounts of justice here? Right. What, what are the underlying, you know, go back to Plato, the underlying definitions, right, that are uh, at work. Um, and what you find, I think, with all of those modern ideas is that while, you know, they have their moments where they kind of latch on to something correct, they don't have the kind of breadth and depth that, that the classical ideas have. And they, they need to be enriched, right, or corrected, yeah. or in some cases entirely refuted by more uh, sort of stable uh, and trustworthy. Uh, and this is criteria. really the danger, right, in letting ourselves um, become fixated on, you know, signing common statements right, with, <laughs> right. people, uh, with, with people, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, the, with people outside the faith, right, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. or uh, or even with uh, with people of other religions, right? Because mm -hmm. not because we have to be hostile toward them, but sure. just we, because we have to recognize that we don't use the terms the same way. The right. very same sentence could mean completely different things depending upon how we're defining the terms. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree. Well, this was really a great conversation, and yeah. um, I appreciate, uh, Bob, I appreciate your joining us today. I, I hope we can have you again. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, um, and Ben, I think your, your book is, your book is a book we need right now. Um, Thank you. Appreciate it. Maybe there's enough left of this republic to, <laughs> that, it could, I, that it could actually be of some help. I do hold out a, a, a vision of a positive vision uh, towards the end about what we can do as as a republic to kind of reform our political life. So there there is that there. All right. Any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, just that uh, you know, uh, um, I think that um, you know, basically in this text, you know, I'm, I'm using classical ideas to try to understand the modern ideas. Very often, you know, we go around, um, you know, to go back to the idea of incommensurability, we go around using terms in ways that we don't understand really what we're saying. Uh, we, we make you know, assumptions about the meaning of, meanings of terms, about justice and injustice, about the common good, about social justice, those sorts of things, right? About happiness, about what is the good. And really, you know, it's incumbent upon us uh, both as Christians and as informed citizens uh, to, uh, you know, patriots, you know, people who love their country, 
to to try to think these through uh, more carefully, more deeply. I think it's especially incumbent upon people who live in a republic, right? In a republic, we are supposed to, you know, we don't all have to be Thomas Jefferson or, or, or that sort of thing, but at the same time, you know, we, we need to, to, the, to the degree to which we're able, we need to be good thinkers, right? Uh, and the health of our republic uh, really depends upon it. Amen. <laughs> so. Go to Amazon and get the book. You'll be edified. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah that, that saves that saves Ben the uh, the need to make the uh, shameless plug himself. <laughs> um, so uh, and and we're very excited to have our, our first publication too from our new imprint. So that's uh, thanks, Ben, for writing this book. Sure, sure. It was a lot of fun. And until next time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, may God richly bless you. <laughs>